Yeah. Do you know what I'm looking forward to? I mean, I'm looking forward to a lot of things. Um, I'm actually pretty pumped up after watching those Olympics, so... You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Habercroft. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me as always in Southampton, England is Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, the Olympics are over, which which kind of depresses me, but man, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. That's kind of what, what my takeaway is, is my, my overriding takeaway from this Olympics was, man, that was a lot of fun. And it was good. Like, if you go back, you go on YouTube, and you look at the 2006 Olympics, and then you compare it to what we just saw, it's like the jump in quality of play is just amazing. Like, everything about it. Everything from, like, the depth of countries to the shot making to the Mm -hmm. ice quality to the sweeping, everything is just so, so much better now. None of you asked Brad Gushu. He thought the ice was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's weird how people think the ice is bad when they lose. Oh, dang. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't lose. He won bronze. He won bronze. Yes. He did win bronze. You're saying that's not enough. Uh, I mean, I think that's pretty good. I, I actually think... So my thought was... Going into that bronze game, when I because that that was one that was on at a time I could watch, and both teams looked really tired. Like yeah. I think there's just like such a letdown from that semifinal game. Oh yeah, especially having to go like same day. The the, the schedule was weird. Like they played that semifinal, and then they turned around and played that bronze really quick right after that. Yeah, exactly. So they looked down, and like I thought. Five ends out, USA was going to catch them because they, hmm. they, they look honestly, that was the worst throwing game I've seen from Gushu like ever. <laughs> like, he was not throwing it well, and it was all, I think, just like adrenaline out of his body, whatever. And then they just kind of turned it on the last couple of ends and forced they forced some misses, yeah. And I, I know so like Kevin Martin was in a similar situation in '94, like his first Olympics, and they mm-hmm. just they they crapped the bed and he, he's always said his biggest regret in his career was not winning that bronze medal game and uh you know i think i think it was good for them to to win it and the emotion at the end was genuine and the feeling i got when i saw that the way that mark nichols broke down is it's probably the end we i think they've hinted mm-hmm. pretty heavily it's the end of that team but it almost seemed like it was the end of mark and brad maybe they might be retiring or obviously maybe moving for something different, but that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, I'm sure we'll find out about that soon. But yeah, it would not surprise me at all. if I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that that's at least the end of Team Gushu as we know it. But in terms of like Mark and Brad retiring, would not surprise me if one or both do take a step back, as it were, from curling. 
but yeah, change, changes are definitely coming up for that team. So what are our, I guess we'll start with, I want to, I want to end with like the positive stuff. All right. So I guess, so I guess where I want to start is narratives. Like you always want to build narratives coming out of a big event like this. Like what are the narratives that we noticed uh, during these games and that the results of these games can kind of point to? And I guess we'll start with Canada. Like what do you think is kind of the narrative surrounding Curling Canada and their teams? Because it seems like now there's a big push to kind of let the curlers have more control. And it seems like, what they want control over is when the trials are held. That's kind of the overriding narrative that I get a sense of. Is that kind of your feel as well? Well, I think, okay. So I think the curlers want more control. I don't know if more control is coming or less control is coming. Cause mm-hmm. if one, if one big narrative is the two most successful countries in this Olympics were Sweden and then GB, Mm-hmm. Those are both program controlled, program selected teams, mm-hmm. uh, where everyone's basically full time program athletes, and that's their yep. that's their job. And the athletes in that program don't have much control. Okay, right? Uh, and there's no playdowns. There's just selection. Um, so. There's the we hear a lot of chatter through social media, podcasts, all that for the athletes' perspective. Mm-hmm. The really big question is, what does this do for curling Canada's Olympic block grant? So they're yep. going to have to go back to the Canadian Olympic Committee. Canada, like a lot of countries, uh, kind of established its funding based on international performance, mm-hmm. and so. With these results, the last two Olympics, and also to be frank, not great results in worlds in the men's and women's uh, the last few years either. Um, there may be calls for that block grant to be cut and for it to be put in other Winter Olympic sports where Canada did better, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the same in the USA, and that's the same that's... in like Britain, right? Like I expect Britain's yeah. actually going to get a very big increase in its funding having been the only sport to deliver medals so and they made um, playoffs in in all three disciplines yeah and i think um and and they can also kind of point to the mixed doubles and say look that team won the world's the year before like they don't just look at the olympics but if if you're not hitting the top tier that you're not hitting the podium regularly in worlds and olympics that then means your budget can be cut and if it's not being cut, you've got to have a pretty clear narrative about what went wrong to the funders. And you've got to have a pretty clear plan to fix it. And a hard question that I think the Canadian Olympic Committee might ask is not about playdowns or athlete empowerment, but actually the exact opposite. The countries that put their money into full-time athletes they basically say, we're going to pay you for a quad and train you, and you're going to be parked in a training center or out on tour, and that's all you do. That's your job. Those countries are doing very well, and the Canadian kind of semi-pro model is starting to falter. And that's that then asks a whole bunch of very tough questions about the identity of the game in Canada. And, you know, it is, is the Olympics everything? Because the other part of Curling Canada is like actually their big revenue makers are the playdown events, including the trials, 
the Briar and the Scotties, but all the, the other TV events. contract is is the yeah. primary source of their funding. Right. So I can't see an easy way for Canada to say, fine, we're going to get rid of trials and just pick four teams. But I, I will say one thought that came to me like during the Olympics is, you know, in that interim between the trials and the Olympics, there was the, the biggest story in Canadian curling was basically two players <laughs> breaking up over social media and having a hissy fit, right? British curling turns through athletes all the time and you have none of that drama mm-hmm. because it's the coaches saying you're in, you're out. They have a press release. It's managed. It's done, right? You don't have this, like, that's the national champion in Canada and they're, like, acting like a bunch of club people who just, like, you know, had a bad breakup, <laughs> right, on Twitter. And it's great for us and it's great for drama, but is that really the best way to run a national program if you want to win at the highest level? And that's, I think that's the, that's the really scary question, I think, for curling. So I think the, it could go very much in the way where it's just Canada could then fund five, six pro teams and that's it. <laughs> and no one else goes. It could mean that Canada says, no, maybe the Olympics isn't everything. And we like our grassroots based model. And I think still Canada will field very competitive teams internationally, regardless of that. But that might mean a, a a drawdown in Olympic funds and a re-emphasis in other activities. That could be a choice that curling Canada and the athletes make, but the Olympics is kind of a two edged sword. And so you gotta be, you know, it brings a lot of money, but it's also brought a lot of changes, some for the better, but I think also some for the worse. Yeah. And the teams they sent were very competitive. You got one bronze medal. You had one team that was a millimeter away from making playoffs and another team that was about, 10 centimeters away from from making the playoffs. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the DSC now? I know that you have capital O opinions, so I'm just going to kind (laughs) of sit back and drink my beverage and let you go. I mean, all right. So I I was fascinated by the DSC conversation coming out of Canadian curling, both Twitter and podcasts. And let's remember that social media and podcasts are not real life. They're not real life, but I'm like... (laughs) Inside Curling had several episodes where they're talking about this. And I was stunned. They had an interview with EJ Harden, and he's like, yeah, the first time we did this this process, which is exactly like the WCF process, was either at the Bubble Briar or at the Trials. I can't remember. But he's like, yeah, we just did it once or twice. And we basically figured out a rotation, and we're right there to go. And, okay, every single... English curling championship, which is very far in quality from the Briar, but every single like English event, world's event, junior bond spiels, competitive bond spiels over here, they all run some version of the WCF draw shot challenge, right? And so anyone who's a competitive curler, by the time they get to the Olympics, will have done this exact format. And it's, it's, there's a lot of subtleties to it, right? There's a lot of um, subtleties to it. When I've played in Canada, the, the standard draw shot challenge thing is one team draws down one side of the sheet. They get three practice shots and they throw their draw. The other team draws down the other side of the sheet, three practice shots, then they get their draw. Um, and that's it. And usually it's the skip that does it. Anyone on the team can do it, but usually it's the skip that does it. And you compare that, say, to like a junior team that since the age of 14 or 15 has done draw shot challenge in the WCF setup where you have your practice time and then two players throw it, but you have to rotate throughout the competition. So everyone's got to throw an equal number of draws and they got to throw both turns. 
that there basically means that everyone's first of all comfortable doing it. The other part is there's like a lot of subtlety to it. Like if you're on the first practice, that's normally a bit slower, especially if it's the morning draw. And so you've got to figure out protocols in that practice for kind of taking the frost off and making sure that your draw shots down those paths are good. Um, and I, I the, the, all those little subtleties you probably pick up doing it years over years over years. And I remember Eve Muirhead, as soon as Britain qualified on draw shot challenges, interviewed on the, D, on the BBC, and she said, you know, our coaches have been telling us for years, draw shot really matters. They make us practice regularly, like daily <laughs> at, the, at the kind of National Curling Academy to do this. The times I've been up there to kind of coach with juniors, one of the first things they go over with a competitive junior team is what is your pregame practice? How do you handle your draw shot challenge? Hmm. And you compare that to like someone from Brad Jacobs team's like, yeah, we did that the first time at the Briar, like basically one or two events removed from the Olympics. I think that's why you had Canada crapping out in the DSC. And really, like, there's no excuse for that. Canada should just adopt the DSC rules that are used everywhere else. You can, you can whine about that as the, the way of breaking a tie, but the rules are the rules, right? And so like, you, can't, you can't go into it. Like, once the rules are set down before the competition, mm-hmm. and you know, you've got to roll with it. That's what the tiebreaker is. That's what the tiebreaker is, right? Every sport has arguments about what the tiebreaker should be. But if you're, as a coach or an athlete, you have to abide by what the rules are and figure out a strategy to manage them. And I think that, that probably exposed Canada a bit there. So... The tiebreaker was really confusing to me because before the event started, we talked to Peter Glant, the head coach of Team Kim, and he was talking about the way the tie was broken when they were at the Olympic qualification event, Mm. where at the end of the Olympic qualification event, Korea, Japan, and Great Britain, or Scotland, basically Eve's team, (laughs) finished in a three-way tie at the top of the table. And the three of them all had one and one records against each other. Mm. And Peter Gallant told us that the way that the tie was broken was the first thing they did was they went off DSC to determine which of the three teams had the best DSC. Mm-hmm. And that team got slot number one. Mm-hmm. And then for slot number two, he said that that was determined on head to head. Basically the three way they used DSC just to get rid of the three way tie that couldn't mm. be broken. And then subsequent ties were broken head to head. And it doesn't look like that's what happened with the women's um, tournament with that three-way tie. Although even if they had done it the way Peter Gallant described it, Canada still would have been out because they would have been in a head-to-head tiebreaker with Japan and Japan would have gone. But either way, that was the part that was confusing to me. But either way, Canada would have been the odd team out. Yeah, so it's actually... I, I don't know this. Yeah, it could vary from event to event, but the the way they do it um, at the events I've been at is they they at the end they only do the ranking at the end of the competition. Yep, and it's a tie break for ranking, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. if it's a two way, the the tiebreaker is head to head record. Yeah, and it's all yeah, and DSC only comes into only comes into play if there's a tie that cannot be broken using head to head. Yeah. And then I, I think there are places where like you, it's going to depend. Like I'd have to pull up the rule book and there's like Mm -hmm. a whole multi-page section on it. Yes. (laughs) Um, 
And to be honest, all this it's like, workflow. It's workflow. <laughs> it, right? it really and speaks then, to me as an operations person. Yeah, you so probably would workflow. like it. There's, there's the person at the, the competition table who who does this, and actually they they kind of. Oh man, I would love that job. Yeah, actually, you, well, you send in your CV to, to Yuri Schnittel, and uh, maybe maybe you too can run stats for the WCF. Um, Telling people no, this is the rule is pretty much what I do from nine to five, Monday through Friday. <laughs> I think you have a future as a WCF technical director. Oh man. <laughs> Dream job. Because <laughs> honestly, my eyes glaze over. I'm like, I don't care. Um there is <laughs> there's a separate thing that's there's a separate sheet that's posted both on the coaches bench and somewhere else around the arena, and that's the draw shot matrix. And mm-hmm. so you have a pretty like everyone they also post on the website, but you know you know, you have a pretty good idea even by your third or fourth draw, where do you stand in terms of that too? So it's not like it's a surprise. Like I, I, I strongly suspect that that team Canada went in that final game knowing they needed help. And, uh, you know, as somebody once said to me, a, a wiser coach than I once said to me, the problem is if you go into the final draw of an event needing help, you rarely get it because the other Mm -hmm. teams there are are not there to help you. Right. So Don't put yourself in a position where you need someone else to help you. All right. So that's enough about Canada. Let's move on to narratives surrounding some of the other countries. And so let's go to Sweden next. Uh, Jonathan, the narrative surrounding Sweden is that, in my opinion, we have a new greatest curler of all time. Yeah, and I agree. I think we were texting uh, back yeah. and forth. And yeah, I think we were clearly, clearly, it's Oscar Eriksson. I <laughs> and I think that's good. I think that's a good good point. I think most people would say Adine, but you're right. And so why Oscar? I mean, he now has more curling Olympic medals than everyone else. And then he had basically everything that Nick has won, Oscar has been there for. So yeah. he has the same amount of medals as as Nick does, and the tiebreaker is he now has a mixed doubles bronze on top of all of that. Does he have a mixed doubles like worlds also? Yes, he does. Uh, 2019, and then he yeah. also has a mixed doubles bronze. <laughs> so he's got a lot of medals. Yeah, I I think yes. A Oscar's got the most medals, so he's the new goat. I think we over prioritize skips when we talk we do. about the goat. Um, but I think Oscar's got a pretty compelling resume for that. I think Team Adine is the new GOAT team. They've got the most world championships. They've got every color medal mm-hmm. that you can get. Like They're the only thing make- he's missing, the only thing they are missing is a European bronze, which, you know, maybe they'll go for that next year just to like have the collection now. <laughs> yeah, just get it all, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think that's good. Like, I think it's good that it's not, I think, again, maybe it's the, no, I wouldn't want to say the decline of Canadian curling, but it's like it's the fact that other world curling powers now can kind of match Canada shot for shot. And so it's great to have a, a team of that caliber do that. And I don't think they're done. Like Nicholas Adin's 36, at least one more quad, maybe two, right? So eh, maybe, or maybe he's got it all now and he's ready to move on to something else, although I don't know what that something else would be. I don't know. Win more stuff. And then, uh, of course, the argument from Canada will be, well, Nicholas Adin doesn't have to play in the briar and qualify out of Canada. And the counter question to that, that was asked by Twitter's Matt Sussman, 
uh, I thought was pretty good, which was if Sweden were a province, how many briars would nicotine have? He would have at least three. Or I'd say three. three. I I thought about that and I came up with three. I would Basically say that matching sure. gu- matching Gushu. I'd say he's a Gushu Kui territory. I mean, yeah. that team would be like playoff team every year, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean. Yeah. And it would then it's like same for Gushu Kui Botcher. It's like all right, you take your shot, right? Like you're not going to win it every year, but I think three over eight. And if you're winning three over eight, that makes you a goat in Canada too. So he's a goat. They're a goat. That team's the goats. I we are in agreement, which makes for boring podcasting because we're not going to yell at each other. <laughs> no. So Do we want what's what's the hot take? <laughs> What's the hot take? I mean, I thought Oscar was a hot take. <laughs> I thought saying Oscar is the mean, greatest curler of all time. Yeah, I like it take. because I think we're, as I've said many times, we're too skip centric in curling, yep. right? And I think, and especially Oscar, he's such a like a big shot maker there at third. Next up is Britain, who came away with three playoff appearances: a gold medal on the women's side and a silver medal on the men's side, and. I think the narrative coming around from Great Britain slash Scottish curling is uh, the British curling program has justified its process because the result or do do results justify the actions? I guess that's the better question as we try to form a narrative around Team GB. Well, I don't. Okay, because this was this was low key controversial because most people in North America don't care. And most people in Scotland don't care about North America, so it's all all fair. Um, but this was fairly controversial when they went the way that they did and said, the Scottish champion is not going to go to Worlds. We're just going to pick the team. And then we're going to use that process. We're going to also use that to pick the Olympic team and do away with uh, a playdown process to determine who was going to rep- represent Scotland slash Great Britain internationally. Well, okay, so let's let's get clear on that. They haven't had a play down process for the Olympic teams since I've been here. It's been I, I I'm not sure if it's 2010 or 2014. 20, 2014, the controversy was Tom Brewster had put a, put together a team. Um, they'd done very well at the World's Year before. I can't remember if it was silver or I think it was silver, maybe even gold, and. Um, and Murdoch was the alternate, and then eventually they made Murdoch the skip, and mm-hmm. Brewster has made the alternate for the team that he'd put together. And that was kind of the beginning of this yeah. process. Um, the the rules that like you can go if you if you really because you're a rules guy, I would direct you to the British <laughs> curling website. <laughs> and there's there are very long and extensive policies and procedures for selecting the national team, and there is a process for other teams to challenge, but the criteria are very clear. And so it's basically, I mean, it's more than just order of merit and performance in major international competitions, but that's what actually matters. So it's the highest ranked teams plus how they've done in kind of past international competitions. So there's a selection committee of like national coaches, the performance director, all that. They sit on a panel, they select the teams based on that. But, and, and so in 2018, when Kyle Smith was selected, uh, Dave Murdoch challenged them, but they tur- the challenge was turned down because there was too much distance between them. And if a challenge is upheld, then you can have a best of three or five playoff or whatever yeah. it is for the team. Um, but if there's there's too much distance in the order of merit points and performance, then they just get selected. But that's been the case for like 
as long as I've been here, at least since 2014, maybe perhaps back to 2010. The big change this quad was that the Scottish champion no longer is guaranteed a spot in the worlds that mm-hmm. the the executive director of British curling can also select that person because they want, um, well, they'll probably select the high performance teams, but again, based on ranking. Um, but I mean, I think the bigger question is what does this mean for the next tier down? Cause really the British curling model mm-hmm. funds three teams full time in each yep. gender. And then a couple of others are kind of what's called the podium potential. Yep. So they normally fund, fund two other, usually younger teams just out of juniors. And then everyone else gets nothing. And a really big question is what happens to those other curlers, right? So like Kyle Smith was the British representative in 2018, and he's nowhere near the the GB program these days. He he plays still in Scotland kind of competitively, but there's not really a path for him. And there's a lot of other competitive curlers that have just kind of dropped away and given up the sport altogether. So I don't know. That's That's the big question, right? That yes, mm-hmm. it gets medals. Uh, and I can't see them changing anything. It'll probably give a lot more power to British curling to continue with this model, but it's, you know, numbers and rinks are down. We like, they've lost Brayhead. Um, there's a rumors of a few other rinks up North closing. Um, so I don't, I don't know if this really leads to great outcomes for curling in total. Mm. If like, basically you fund 30 athletes and you know, the other five, 6,000 curlers, there's nothing there for them. So that's, that's the, that's the big question there for, for British curling. Would, would you say it's kind of similar to Canada where doing this and only funding the elite of the elite and not giving anyone else even access to representing the country uh, is, is, is going to do more harm than good to the grassroots level. Would you say that that's kind of unique to Scotland and Canada? I think Scotland and Canada are slightly different because I'm, although Canada's got problems with its grassroots, it's still got like a million curlers, right? Like, I think there's other issues there about the grassroots, but it still has got like a lot of curlers. And there's, there's a lot of other things you can curl in in Canada if you can't win the briar. So like, there's a lot of other ways for people to stay engaged. I think Scottish curling will point out that there, there are a lot of different events that you can compete in in Scottish curling yes. too. And that's the thing is I, th- I think, and there's probably a lot of people in the UK that will disagree with me, but I, I think that Scottish curling has done a good job of kind of pivoting and focusing more on grassroots as an organization, at least among what I can see coming from Scottish curling as someone who lives in the United States and just follows this stuff as much as he can online. Yeah, I so I think it's good. Okay, so yes, it's good in the sense that British curling only focuses on Olympics and World Championships. I think the big question is, what does somebody do if they have competitive ambitions but aren't selected for the high-performance squad? Mm-hmm. And l- let's say there's, as I said, there's like 30 athletes on the high-performance squad, maybe a bit yep. more. There's probably another 50 to 60 good curlers in that 20 to, th- to like early 30s range. And is it just like you've got nothing? <laughs> Too bad. Like what do, what do you have to aim for? And that's basically the... basically you just have to shoester it and get four people, three other people that weren't selected and beat them at their own game. 
which is, I mean, not everyone can do that. It takes someone who's both very talented and very, very dedicated. And Schuster still had a path. Like there's no play down path. So the only way a non-program team could kind of punch through these days is they'd have to get themselves yep. to the top 30 in the world yep. without funding. Especially, it's, yeah, and that's a good point. That's also tougher to do in Europe because you're not going to be able to afford to come to Canada and play in those high point events the way a yeah. funded team would. That's a good point. So basically, you'd, you'd almost just have to say, okay, the Scottish champion is guaranteed a spot in the program even for one year, even though... They wouldn't like that's basically the only way that you can give like a backdoor into having access, even though basically saying, even though you're not going to go represent Scotland at Worlds next year, you get to be in the program and you get X amount of funding from the British program. That's basically the only way they'd be able to do it. But I doubt they would they would ever do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't I, there's a bigger set of questions. I think at some point there probably has to be a sit down in Scottish curling. I mean, there are, there was like the big controversy at the Scottish AGM a few years ago, but there does need, and there's this um, British players open championship or whatever, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like a rival being set up to the Scottish, which we discussed on a previous episode. We brought in the, the organizer of that event to talk about what it means and why they were doing it, which is, which was really fun to hear about. And I, I, I mean, and I've kind of blogged about this in the past that my view is that we almost need a, I guess people chafe when I call it amateur, but amateur just means you, you don't get paid to do it. <laughs> and to be honest, um, you know, 99% of curlers out there do not get paid to curl. They pay to curl. Mm-hmm. Um, there should just be a world amateur championship, uh, and, let the winner of the Travelers in Canada and the U.S. Club Championship and maybe have, you know, Scotland have a, a champion through that path and maybe England and Wales. And you go around to a bunch of other countries, like, you know, and you create that as an event you can play down in and then have that have that world championship in a really nice venue, maybe one year Europe, one year Canada, one year Asia. And uh, I think that might give the non-elite competitive curler is something to shoot for while just acknowledging that the the international game is something totally different now. I think that it's wrong to view the Olympics as the thing that maybe is killing grassroots curling. Think what is doing more harm than even that is that the world's are what determines who qualifies for the Olympics because now all the NGBC the world's not necessarily as this grand world championship where you win your play down and then you represent your country internationally. It's they view it as this is our Olympic qualifier. Yeah. And so if you had like a world cup circuit that determined the Olympic qualification points rather than the world championship, they wouldn't be, uh, I mean, I don't think if that were the case, I don't think British curling would have stepped in and said, okay, we're going to pick who's going to represent Scotland at Worlds. I think they would just let the Scottish champion do that if they've got a circuit that does determine Olympic qualification of points that they can appoint teams to. That may be kind of Pollyanna-ish. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I do think, I mean, they tried, the WCF tried this, right? This World Cup of Curling thing. 
that they ran but, it for a year. But it was a bad it wasn't I there were a lot of things to not like about it. Yeah. I I And it think, was completely reliant on money from one marketing company in China. Yeah. I I think it was but I do think it was the right idea. I think it was a really weird format versus yes. if you basically had a WCF kind of slam that was countries, not just random teams, and maybe stronger countries get more teams. And, you know, maybe there's a tier two for developing curling countries that the prize is you get to qualify for a World Cup in a tier one or something, but something like that. Uh, and there's events in Asia, Europe, and Canada where it's like really high tier and you get TV involved and you can kind of watch it everywhere. I think that that's really appealing. And then if that becomes your your points accumulation system for the Olympics, then that just kind of creates a separate professional thing where those teams are all funded by their national governing bodies. And that becomes kind of something appealing to watch as fans, but also kind of gives a space for those teams to compete where they're not kind of mixing up with the kind of amateurs for lack of a better term. At the end of the day, team GB and Scottish curling, a ton to be proud of a gold medal and a silver medal from two people who are tremendous athletes and really tremendous role models for people all around the world, not just there in Britain, and especially in Scotland, in Eve Muirhead and Bruce Mowat. All right, our, the next narrative that I have, and this actually came straight from Curling Geek on Twitter, and that's that four feet of curl makes for more exciting curling than six feet of curl. And what I'm talking about is if you're new to curling and you're new to this show, most high-level international events, the ice makers try to make it to where a draw to the T-line will curl six feet. And when that happens, a lot of times you can play hack weight or a, a rock that you know isn't a full takeout and not necessarily a draw, but is meant to just you know barely get the stone you're trying to get out of scoring position, get it just outside of the house. Usually the guards don't matter on six feet of curl and you can get a rock around a guard with enough weight to get that rock out of the house and still sit in the house where that previous rock was. That wasn't possible with four feet of curl during much of this, much of this tournament. And it, it made for some games that uh, there was never a point where you thought a team couldn't come back. It seemed like. Yeah. And that's, I think that, Okay. So we've had like five rock and I guess it'll be like nine rock and no ticks or whatever. The next <laughs> one is and like, I mean, curling and golf aren't that dissimilar. And one of the things they talk about in golf for years is like, how do you tiger proof a course? Like one way <laughs> yes. to, I don't know who we're trying to like proof the curling course again, but how do you slam proof the course? Cooey is, proof. Cooey proof the ice. Cooey, yeah. How you, well, Cooey's not like a, a touch player, right? But like whoever... Like if you take away that, like on six feet of curl, guards are meaningless. Yes. You can always come around, right? You can always hook it. You can always draw a side pin. Um, four feet, exactly as you said, like you can wrap around a guard if you throw it properly, but it's not always there. And so making the ice just that little bit more difficult and demanding of a player's skill and not making it so every shot is, I don't want to say easy, but like always there. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is a better test of skill, right? Like, uh, I was playing at Fenton's this weekend and there was 
two feet of curl if it was good on a good day. <laughs> and, you know, that changes your strategy. You can't just like that. I don't, I wouldn't say you want two feet of curl on the championship ice, but basically, you know, playing around with the ice conditions a bit can affect the strategy and can make the game a bit more interesting. And I think rather than like looking for 38 more rule adjustments, maybe just playing with the ice conditions, not to make it impossible, not to make it bad, but just to make it a little more challenging for the mm-hmm. players, leading to a few more misses, which makes it a lot more exciting. All right. And then the narratives I have coming out of mixed doubles is one, hey, tier two nations can excel at mixed doubles, man. And they, that is that might be your path to winning a medal at the Olympics, as Italy showed. And then number two, mixed double specialists might be a thing of the past. Yeah, I think, and that goes back to something that Peter Gallant said also, where he's like, often in a lot of these countries he was pl- he was coaching against in the Olympic qualification event, like the skips and thirds were often very good, right? And so one name he mentioned that I'll just kind of throw out there is Dilsat Yildiz, who's the skip mm-hmm. of Turkey. They're going to be in the Worlds this year. She can make shots. Like, don't don't be like, oh, Turkey, what are they doing in the Worlds? Like, like she can make shots. Like, watch out for her. She may not have as deep a team, but there'll be some highlight reel shots from her for sure. She beat the Olympic gold medalist at the Olympic qualification event. Yeah, exactly. So, and don't, <laughs> and that was not a fluke. Like, no, like she is a shot maker. Um, and so that in a country like Turkey or even like, like Italy, I think they tweeted out, they have 360 curlers. Like that's the size of their federation. Maybe it's a little bit bigger, but it's not that big. Um, and so, you know, maybe in any, every generation you get one or two Stefania Constantinis or Amos Mosseners, right. Coming up. Cause you have a very small pool to draw from, but yes, if you compare them together and give them the resources, they have a chance to, to excel in mixed doubles. So, and that, that's one of the reasons the WCF put it there. It makes it easier for emerging countries to enter mixed doubles as the first world championship as opposed to a men's or women's. And it's easier to identify one really good thrower of each gender and put them together rather than try to have a, pers- a four-person team in either gender. And then what about mixed doubles specialists? Um, I mean, you're still going to see them. In fact, you're probably still going to see them at the Olympics. But... I think that that I hate it, but I think they're a dying breed. Or one of two things happens there. So I think for now, again, this is like the elite program teams. They're just, I think the British model, like the Brits basically, okay. The British curling system basically had separate mixed doubles teams until 2018. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And actually Bruce Mowat was with Gina Aiken. That was his partnership. And he was primarily a mixed doubles player out of out of juniors and kind of played a lot of mixed doubles there. And I, I actually, because it's a separate conversation for a separate day, but I think that really shapes his tactics. Like he's hmm. very comfortable with rocks in the forefoot and he's really good at forefoot angles. So it was good developmental for him, but obviously he's a four-person primary now. Team GB then immediately switched after Johnny Moe and Caitlin Laws won to like, no, we're just going to take our program teams, pair them up. <laughs> And play mixed. Mm-hmm. I think the, the the thing is they play mixed doubles on Friday and and did, didn't doesn't do the they don't do the uh, mixed doubles specialist teams anymore, right? So that's a big shift. And yeah, I I, I think the, the big debate was: do specialists in this discipline have an advantage, or can you just drop shooters in and they do it kind of as a side? The other thing to note is that most of those mixed doubles 
teams were also kind of fully funded program teams, right? Yeah. Like, so there is, it's not, uh, uh, there's probably another place where Canada's kind of semi-professional model may, may be in trouble. So narratives sometimes are good, but you usually when you're crafting a narrative, you're, you're crafting it to be controversial or, <laughs> or in the negative, but I do want to end on a lot of positivity. I have my list, but I just want to talk about these are our favorite things from the 2022 Olympics. The things we'll remember, the things we liked, just our favorite things, not even awards, just I'll let you, do you want to start or do you want me to go? I have a long list. My, all right, I'll give you two, then you give your long list, then I'll think of some more. So my two favorite things were, okay, first of all, that game, that women's semifinal between yeah um (laughs) team gb in sweden women's semifinal that that is like all right we we did a run it back and my favorite curling game of all time was that 97 briar final and that Mm -hmm. was partly because they had a lot of crazy momentum swings like this thing this thing destroys that like this is now my new favorite game like favorite single game of all time it's just like the shots the craziness you think it's gone i mean so I watched the first end and I was like, oh crap, they gave it before. And so I went off, I left it on, but I went off and made like a coffee and was like, I'll, I'll just bring my laptop and like answer some emails. Right. And then it's like, so I'm half paying attention. They got a three and I'm like, oh, okay. It's going to be one of those games. And then I just, you know, <laughs> I, I, I was able to watch all the way until the 10th end. And then as I told you, I've got to go teach my class. Now, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Did you make um, them watch the game? No, we, we, I had to. I had to do like a Zoom delivery oh. because uh, we had a. Big Should have just screen shared. <laughs> just screen, <laughs> screen share the game. We're gonna watch like, some curling now, kids. We're gonna watch for fifteen minutes. We're watching this. <laughs> and yes, it will be on the exam. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that, and honestly, I really okay. I love the way Team Schuster really pissed off the BBC commentators. Like he, <laughs> it was like, I, and so for people who aren't in Britain, it was, they have this guy, uh, Steve Cram, who's like this former track superstar who does curling for some reason, doesn't really know it all that well, but it's like a professional broadcaster. And then they have Rona, Rona Howie. So Rona Martin from 2002 and Jackie Lockhart, who's like another top kind of British international curler. And, so Jackie and Rona are always kind of steering Steve back on path, but he just he'll just go off and just he says one wrong thing about curling and end, <laughs> and that's a good end. <laughs> Sometimes it's three, <laughs> and they were like, like like Matt Hamilton was living rent free in Rona Howie's head <laughs> that whole game. She was like, she started off she's like, oh, he's got some jazzy shoes and the jazzy tattoos and jazzy head. Oh, she did not. <laughs> like Matt Hamilton at all and then when he made his shot and did his like his little double and he did his like air guitar he <laughs> didn't like that and then BBC kept like playing the air guitar over and over again and then when uh, and then in the end when um, when Flies missed his two draws <laughs> Steve Cram's like the air guitars have gone silent <laughs> it was like it was like <laughs> They were like it was like wrestling. I was watching like like watching pro wrestling. <laughs> Team USA were right. the heels, and it was fantastic. You have to remember like why he's 
doing that. And that is that Team Schuster, they get, they, they feed off of energy in the building, which is hard to do when no one's there like it was at these Olympics. And it's Matt's job to bring the energy. And so that's what he has to do for that team is, oh, I, fi- I, I missed a couple. I finally made a shot. Boom, air guitar, like trying to pump his team up. And it, I love it that that made the BBC so mad because it brings up another thing that we've talked about um, here on this show, which is curling needs more rivalries. So the fact that the BBC and then a bunch of Scottish curling fans just couldn't stop obsessing over the air guitar makes me so happy. I mean, <laughs> if you were watching the BBC, you would have thought Schuster was the favorite in that game, right? Which is hilarious. Because <laughs> it's like, Mooit's literally the best team in the world, right? So like, there's no literally they were the they were the betting favorite to win gold. Yeah, and they were and, the, and apparently you were telling me they were like playing up like this David versus Goliath matchup, but Team Schuster was Goliath. Yeah, it was all like Schuster's like the gold medalist yes. and all. It was yes. it was hilarious. Anyway, plucky underdog Bruce Mowat. Yeah. <laughs> oh man! All right, so my list. One is Stefania Constantini, uh, because Marco Mariani, the head coach of the Chinese women's team, who's from Italy, like tried to tell me she was good. Um, and I, I, I was just like, okay, yeah, I'm sure that by 2026, she'll be really good. And that'll be great because that'll lead right up into the Olympics being in her hometown. That'll be a great story. Uh, no, we're, we are way ahead of schedule on that. Uh, she's definitely really good. And now she has a gold medal to back it up. So that was one of my favorite things. And was playing in the World Junior B pool just a few years ago. Wow. Right? Like, <laughs> like that's I, I, I can't remember if it was 19 or 18, but like... Yeah, like like that's the, like the the from B's to Olympic gold medal. And there's there's several that have kind of gone through the B pool and mm-hmm. and kind of won medals, right? But it's it's uh, well, Magnuson, Daniel Magnuson, who's the ultimate oh, yeah. right, on on Yadin's team, right? He was also in the junior B pool a couple of years ago. So, like it's it's not that sometimes it feels a million. This is this for like anyone who's like a young competitive curler out there. Sometimes it feels like you're a million miles away from the Olympics and you really aren't like, and it doesn't really matter what country you come from. Like if you're playing at a high level in your country, you're, you're, you're not that far away. It's closer than you think. That's a great teaching point for all you junior coach or coaches out there throughout the world. Um, my next favorite thing was, uh, Fujisawa Satsuki's, uh, like the daily affirmations that she had written on her hand. I don't know if you saw this, Jonathan. No, we didn't get much Japanese curling coverage here. We just got all I saw was the games they played GB. So, well, I saw it on social, and basically the photographers that were at the games caught on to the fact that Fujisawa was writing. So it was either Fujisawa or it was JD Lind, and I've seen pictures that make it seem like maybe it was JD Lind writing these things, but. In English, there were like these little daily affirmations written on her right hand. And they said things like, I am a good curler. I have confidence. And it was it was so adorable. <laughs> and I loved it. And it was just one of my favorite things to come from these Olympics. I'm going to write that on my hand. You should. I'm going to write that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to write. I'm going to write. Uh, I have confidence on my right hand whenever I go into work. <laughs> awesome. Next thing was Australia's two-win day after their COVID scare in mixed doubles where I went to bed thinking that Australia 
the team of Tally Gill and Dean Hewitt were going to have to go home winless um, after Tali had a positive COVID test come back. And then by the time I woke up, um, not only were they back in the competition, but they had won two games, including against their coach and Team Canada. <laughs> and not, that's what probably knocked Canada out of the uh, the playoff round. One of the things that One knocked things, Canada yeah. out of the playoff round. But I was I was so happy for them. Their I, I feel like their Olympics could have gone a lot differently. Their first game, they were beating the U.S. pretty good, and then they had a wide open hit to win to beat the U.S. in uh, draw number one. Unfortunately, flashed the takeout to lose that game. And then it kind of just all spiraled from there on the ice over those next few games. I, I can't help but think that if you win that and all of a sudden you've won your first Olympic game in a game that you basically had control of from start to finish, I think that your Olympics would go a little bit differently. But for them to get those two wins the way they did, um, I, I, that was just a really positive thing that I loved. Yeah, they were really close to knocking off GB2. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I mean, I hope they get funding from this, right? We talked, it's a bit, it's like cutthroat. So maybe, oh, you, you didn't get, yeah. <laughs> didn't win a medal. No money for you is kind of the unfortunate part of how Olympic sports works. But hopefully the Australian yeah. Olympic Association realizes they've got a really good potential team here. And if they invest in them for a quad, they could be a medal threat next time around. It, it kind of stinks. It's it, it almost, it sucks to say this, but Australia had a really successful winter Olympics and had a lot of people bring home medals. And it's almost like, okay, if everyone else had done poorly, it's like you have less competition for this funding. Yeah. So it's almost like, oh, Australia having a really good Olymp- winter Olympics is actually bad for curling. Yeah. I mean, that's the case with everything right like it's so i mean gb struck out on everything but curling so from a purely uh selfish perspective i'm happy about that but it's i think it's a horrible model for sports funding but that's a that's for a different day yeah uh and then we talked about matt hamilton's air guitar and really just great seeing team schuster back in the playoffs i think that that uh, I think that that tells the world that the gold medal last time was not a fluke. I mean, there were two wins. They played really well against Bruce Mowat in that semifinal. And then Bruce Mowat makes this draw in nine that I think just broke everyone's spirit. <laughs> <laughs> and I've had those games where you're playing against somebody and they're just playing so well. And then you make a shot that you think it's like, okay, yeah, let's see them match that. And then they do. And then you're just like, all right, that's, I, I can't do this anymore. And it seems yeah. like that was kind of what happened in that game. Uh, Cause Bruce and Grant just played so well. And then um, unfortunately lost to Canada, which, you know, as an American kind of chaps me, but whatever. <laughs> I, I mean, if you want two moments that I like, so one, I actually genuinely liked the, the emotion when Canada won the bronze, right? And it was not, I think in earlier Olympics, it might've been, oh, we want a bronze and like whatever. But the, 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 like Mark Nichols was genuinely like knocked over and Mm -hmm. he's already got a gold medal, but I think he appreciates how much winning any Olympic medal, regardless of the the kind of medal it is, uh, 
is an accomplishment. And just like the moment between him and Brad was kind of cracked me up a bit. And what was heartening for me was at, after the game, there's this moment where Matt Hamilton hugs uh, Brad Gushu and team Gushu actually shared that photo and kind of some good words about it um, after the game. And it was really kind of beautiful to see like all the comments on that were Canadian curling fans saying good things about team Schuster. And that's just, that, that just kind of shows you that, I don't know that, that narratives are not real life, right? That there are a lot of Canadian curling fans that have genuine love and appreciation for an American curling team that it did. Yes. It's a, it's a rivalry, but it really is a friendly rivalry with a lot of respect on both sides. And a lot of these teams know each other and are good friends. Like yeah. Anna Hasselberg and Eve Muirhead have been curling against each other yes. since they were like 16 or something. Right. And they're friends. They're like super like tight. Right. Like it's not, it's not a phony friendship. They're not frenemies. It's like, like the, there's like one time they asked Eve to skip for them in a slam. Right. Um, yeah. So and Anna was at mixed doubles worlds. Yeah. And like, it was I okay? The social media thing I hated was like the tribal nationalism, where it's like, I, cheer for your country, of course, of course, but like you don't you you don't need to cheer against another country or hate another country just because they're playing your country, right? And I think mm-hmm. one thing I like having coached in these international events is, um, they they form friendships across international borders, often across languages. That's like really powerful and kind of stay in touch and you know, connect on social media and it's, it's got nothing to do. Like part of the Olympics in its purest form is about bringing countries together and breaking down borders. And I I think a lot of the curling interactions between the curlers, you saw that sometimes on social media, we can think of certain websites or (laughs) Facebook pages perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't just one country. There's like a lot of countries like, ah, I hate that country. Right. And it's like, like, I've, there are very few curlers I've met in my life that I hate, yeah. regardless of where they're from. I think yeah. in general, curlers are really great people. And probably any country I go to with curling, I probably already have friends there because we love something. We have something in common that we love. Right. And then I want to end on Team Kim and seeing them back in the Olympics. They came so close to making the playoffs they actually beat the two teams that were in the gold medal in the round robin. And it just, one, it just goes to show you like how close all of these teams were to each other on the women's side, like one bad end against China and one bad end against the United States. And all of a sudden team Kim's like six and three and they're the three seed in the playoffs or one of those ends goes away and maybe they win on a tiebreaker and get in. And I I know they'll be disappointed, but I hope that they come away from this event thinking that they are that close to being the best team in the world, honestly, because really there's about six teams, six, seven teams in this field that can say that can, that can say that, you know, we're this close to being the best team in the world. If we can just add this much more consistency, we're the best team in the world. But it, it was just beautiful to see them back, to see them, I don't know, ho- I, I, hopefully happy, hopefully getting more, hopefully just getting joy out of curling. But it was great to see them back and great to see kind of the world embracing them again. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get to see them at the Worlds too. And uh... Yeah, we will because they're, they're Team Korea for the whole okay. year. So they'll, they'll be there. 
Um, it was fun hearing some of the stats. Like one of the stats I read was 46% of people uh, in Korea watched Korea's game against Japan in the round robin. Uh, our friend Naoki told me that like 29% of people with televisions in Japan watched the gold medal game between Fujisawa and, and Muirhead. Um, crazy stuff like that. I haven't seen any stats on like U.S. viewership, but um, probably less than it was, well, obviously probably less than it was in Pyeongchang, but hopefully still pretty solid. But, and one of the things that's interesting is a lot of these curling countries now are not necessarily Winter Olympics countries. If mm-hmm. That makes sense, right? So like, there's a lot of coverage for curling in, in on the BBC because that's one of their few metal hopes and it's on, you know, all, well, more than the two weeks. <laughs> it starts on yeah. the Wednesday before, so it's on for like 18 days. And um, like, that's just great advertising for the sport. And so hopefully yep. in some of these countries that leads to more rinks, sometimes I'm a bit skeptical of that, but uh, yep. I'll hope. I'll keep my fingers crossed. That's right. We're going to end on hope. Hope. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.